Uh, good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Bonnie. How are you? Yeah, how are you doing? I'm just plugging along here in the hottest part of the summer. But yeah. honestly, it's been so mild compared to normal that I'm really, I really feel like I can't complain. Yeah. Planning my fall yeah. garden. Um, this is going to be my first year really trying to actually garden other than just like, oh, okay. cool. random things. If I have some seeds or I've grown tomatoes the past couple of summers, but I really want, here we have two growing seasons. So right. we grow basically spring, spring and fall and until it freezes, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, you're going to have fresh produce. So trying to do that. So I'm really excited, but um, it's a lot of work. And I'm learning a lot. Do you guys have any, do you guys have any garden pests? Like we hear deer are a huge problem. So we couldn't really do a vegetable garden until we deer fenced, which we did last fall. We have a fence all around our property. Um, we don't live in an area where there are a lot of deer deer are an issue out in the like suburbs, but we're pretty much, we're pretty urban. So we don't have it. We don't have the deer. Um, the squirrels are my nemesis. <laughs> they, like they ate, we planted some sunflowers and they ate all the buds. Oh, of the sunflower That had already, like, we planted some transplant sunflowers. So I was so sad because our sunflowers never even had a chance. Right. <laughs> um, they dug up my seeds before and eaten them. Um, so I don't know what, how we're going to deal with that, but hopefully they'll be so distracted by all the acorns because we have four huge oak trees on our property, on our, at our house. And, um, there, I mean, these oak trees are probably 80 or 90 years old, maybe older. Um, they're gorgeous and they drop so many acorns (laughs) that the squirrels should be totally satisfied. Right. Yeah. They'll be occupied with other things than your garden. (laughs) No, I'm hoping that that won't be a problem, but crazy. Yeah. uh, Crazy. Hey, no, here mostly it's the deer, but I mean, there are other things that can be a pest, but it's mostly deer. So I saw you had 200 pounds of blueberries. Were those your own blueberries? No, no, there's a lot of blueberries grow here. Um, So there are within, you know, 10 minutes of our house, there are a couple of very big blueberry farms. And this year, normally I do about 100, 120 pounds. Uh, And this year, the place where I was buying blueberries, they phoned me and said, I I put my order in. And then they phoned me and said, actually, we're dropping the price. It's usually about $5 a pound to $4 a pound, because the you know, it's so bountiful. Right. And then about two weeks later, when I went to go pick up my second order, because I had them spaced out so I could process them, they said, you know what, we're dropping it to, to 250 a pound. So, but I'm letting our customers know first. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to get as many as my freezer will hold. So. That's amazing. I'm so jealous. Berries, blueberries do not grow here. And so I get frozen blueberries. Like I really like the wild blueberries. Um, and you can get a huge bag of frozen wild blueberries from Canada, uh, from the boreal forest, um, and at Costco. And I get those. My boys love them. I think they taste so much better than. Apparently quite different than the cultivated ones. Like the cultivated ones are really big. Mm -hmm. Like my husband grew up in Northern Alberta. So he, they picked wild blueberries, not something that grows on the island. They're tiny. Yeah, and he said they're tiny and delicious and and whatever. Blueberries are really good, but they're apparently quite a different thing they than are. the wild ones. They are. But I wish we could, I wish we could grow those here. But we I, and there are some berry farms close by, but they only grow like blackberries and 
some strawberries maybe. Okay. Um, raspberries and blueberries do not do super well in the heat. Okay, interesting. Hmm. We had also, we last year had their wild blackberries grow in massive abundance here, like every mm. side of the road, every side of the highway. There's gazillions of blackberries, the great big, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. English ones. And they... Uh, we have several blackberry plants growing on our property, but they were kind of wild and gangly. So last year I trimmed them all back and they're growing over trellises now. So I, I, oh. you can make them really compact. So we actually went out and picked today and I probably got five pounds of blackberries oh, just wow. in an hour That's or so, awesome. you know. Yeah. So that was been kind of one, one of my little gardening projects from last year. <laughs> well, so I, I am a little envious of, of the weather that you have and probably it's probably very easy to grow a lot of things there. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's a pretty broad range because we still do get a winter and we do freeze, but it, not very long and a long, long growing season compared to a lot of the other parts of Canada kind of thing. So yeah, yeah we like it. <laughs> well, I have a very um, <laughs> tough topic for you today. Oh, okay. Love that. You've been, thinking a lot about praying a lot about and just kind of meditating on um, the virtue of obedience right? as it pertains to child parent relationships. Um, because I think what I see a lot in Catholic and just Christian circles in general is this idea that children must obey their parents right? because it is commanded to them by God Um I think in Ephesians 4.12, children obey your parents in the, in the Lord for this is good, um, I think is the verse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also like parents don't stir up anger in your children, which typically is not quoted as often mm-hmm. as the verse about children obeying their parents. But I think um, there's this attitude and it's still pretty prevalent that obedience is like the most important virtue or the most important thing that a child could have in response to anything their parent asked them to do or any adult really. Um, And that if a child shows any kind of resistance or does just flat, flat out doesn't do it on the first time that they're asked to do it um, immediately with a smile, you know, that they're somehow either their parents haven't trained them well enough or they're defiant. Yes. And they need to be corrected, basically corrected into submission um, and punished, or they're just going to become, because this idea is that if you're not obedient to your parents, you won't be obedient to God. Right. And, um, I've just been thinking a lot about this because I have a three and a half year old and they have a very strong counter will. They, they really resist anyone else's agenda and it's not, it, they're not capable of sin of committing sin at this point. I, we, the church teaches that you cannot commit a sin until you are reached the age of reason. And that's typically for most kids between sometime between five and nine. I mean, yeah. it, it can, it really there can range. Yeah. Depends, depends on the child. I mean, officially it's seven is the age of reason. But the, so the church teaches you cannot sin 
commit a sin before that. Now you can still have the, you know, original sin is still something that you deal with no matter what age you are, but that's not the same thing as committing a sin. And so a child is totally innocent of sin until they understand the difference between right and wrong and can actually reason out, okay, if I do this, this is wrong. And this is, you know, wrong according Mm -hmm. to God's law or whatever. Um, But I think so often there is this attitude amongst Catholic parents, grandparents, whatever, that um, a child who does not immediately obey on command, whether it's in school, like, you know, doing their schoolwork, doing their cleaning their room, picking up a toy, uh, whatever it might be, that they are, that that is some somehow something that has to be like, beaten out of them not not literally but it has to be sort of like um they have to be chastened so that they will be obedient and submissive to your will and therefore submissive to god's will right and i know you have a very different approach to obedience and to the concept of defiance and i've benefited so much from it um reading your book revolution of mercy but i think it just would be really great to talk about it on the podcast because I think so many people are coming from this perspective of, I am a bad parent if my child doesn't obey me right away. Right. And my child is not a good child if they don't obey me right away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's, it's a great question. And I, I, uh, it's a very big question. You're right. So, so tough in that sense, but let's see if we can sort of unpack it a bit. I think that, um, when when we hear scripture talking about uh, obedience and obedience to our parents, of course, this we know that this to be true and good and beautiful, right? It's it's unlikely that scripture is referencing very small children in, yeah. in this passage, right? Now it's not explicit, so we we can't know. But there are passages where. It, you know, makes reference to a wean child on its mother's knee. So when mm-hmm. we're talking in our culture, a wean child could be six months old, but in that culture, right. a weaned child on its mother's knee, children would be allowed to wean at their, you know, um, appropriate time. There wasn't sort of weirdness about nursing a child a long time that was normal, healthy, good. And so, you know, we can assume that Jesus would have weaned three, four, five, six, you know, we don't know. There's nothing explicit about that. But we, what we know is that weaning happens much, much later for millennia. And what we experience now is, is older. Okay. So that's, that's a whole topic for another, um, another podcast right. episode, but that we're talking about a child who really is more at the age of reason. Okay. Yeah. And I've actually, I, I recently read that, that the translate, the word for child or children that is used in the, in the scriptural text refers to children who are old enough to follow the commandments. And for the Jews, that's 12 or 13. Yeah. And so there's, there's often even, even, um, uh, there's actually a really great resource that I'm going to point you guys to because she examines this idea in full, sort of the age uh, that we're talking about when scripture talks about spare the rod, spoil the child, that kind of thing, right? That it's talking about really young adult men 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, disrespecting, disobeying their parents, right? When we're talking about the corporal punishment. and But the blog is called Hippie Housewife. Okay, and I'll put it in the show notes for a a link. This is actually a woman who lives in Vancouver, and her and I are very similar. She's younger, kids are quite a bit younger than mine. But we kind of connected when I started blogging. And she had some beautiful kind of treatise on her blog and kind of collected the, I think she calls it the Rod Verses. And she has several blog posts on this idea of discipline and scripture and our our misunderstandings of, of what it all means. So, but we can assume at least that, the age of reason or the age at, at which a child can can follow the commandments and that all the years in between that are years when we are modeling submission okay mm. and when i say submission i'm talking about submitting to so i'm talking about us modeling something in our relationship with god to the child so our ability to submit to the will of God in every moment of our day, right? Meaning when something presents itself, whether the something is uh, somebody showing up at your door, whether the something is the juice spilling on the floor, whether the something is a child with a fever, whatever the something is, we yeah. in our modern culture spend most of our time rallying against what is instead of... Mm-hmm submitting to what has been presented in our life, whether it's God's will that that thing, you know, has been presented, the good, the good that can come out of that is our response to it, right? So whatever nasty, awful, irritating, annoying thing is presented to us, our primary goal as adult humans would be to accept that a thing has occurred. And now how do I respond to that thing? And we are really exercising submission in in an unbelievable way, both in our, our response to what God has allowed to cross our paths, but also in the big picture of things, what that means to a child observing this is just so enormous. It's not even, mm-hmm. it's not even palpable. It's not even something you could, that the child is going to be able to consciously say, oh, I saw my mom, um, you know, wrestling with her own emotions and, and, uh, and coming out on top sometimes and sometimes not. And that weighed in so big for me. It just, it's not. It's just remote formation in the way we respond to the world around us. You know, maybe that's another adult who's insults us. Maybe that's, you know, who knows? It could be such a, a, a multitude of possibilities in the way we respond to the moment. But what we're teaching a child in that moment is how we submit to God's, um, uh, either his permissive will or his, um, what's the opposite of permissive will, like a active active will. will, right? So we are presented with something and we respond. Sometimes it's just what is allowed that happens in our life. And sometimes it's actually something that is God is actively presenting us with and we have to decide what to do with it right Mm -hmm. and so i mean i think that the the lesson in this is just far far too big to ignore right and so big that okay yeah well what do you mean you know that that how can i possibly be living that out you know when i'm learning how to be a parent well it's the process 
that matters, right? It's not the fact that you're not doing it well now. It's the fact that every day you're trying to grow a little bit in that area, right? And the yeah. the, the way this plays out for our children is just so huge. So, so obedience in the moment, that remote formation that our children are just because they're living in the environment is huge in terms of what we ask of them to obey. So that's sort of one big, big side of this. Okay. We can call it obedience in the moment, duty of the moment, submission to God's will, um, mm. self-reflection on our own relationship with God. You know, there's many, many ways we could phrase that. And maybe we should use all of them in a sense to, yeah. to relate this to how this all plays out in terms of how we interact with our children. But then there's this other thing that we know that our child is given to us and they are not fully formed, right? Not like other animals that their brains are not fully formed, their e emotions need guidance, they're they're helpless, right? You know, of all yeah. animals, human beings are among the most helpless of God's creatures. And so we can't expect that they're going to know what to do without a lot, a lot, a lot of guidance and formation. Okay. Mm. So we, we have to expect it's going to take a lot of our time, energy, patience, formation to build the character of the person, right? Of that little person as they grow up. Yeah. And so when we say, do we want obedience? Absolutely. And I would say overall, I had really obedient kids, right? But it was no accident. It was because I didn't, A, expect them to be obedient when they were two or three or four or even five. You know, there was many situations that I would not have expected obedience from them. But what I do expect is that they're going to um, be formed by me, right? That's a big right. time commitment. <laughs> It's a big time commitment. And, but that is what we're entering into in the world of parenthood. So, you know, by way of yeah. example, we, our child there too, and we call them in. If they don't come the first time, we just go and get them, right? Yeah. You know, and when they're two, we actually pick them up and, you know, we, we can be very kind about that. But it's simply a matter of, if, you know, I couldn't call you one time and the formation, they're rarely going to come the first time at two. In the formation yeah. is, I've called you, now I'm picking you up and taking you inside, right? And oh, yeah. it's time. Yeah, mommy, yeah, mommy's just called you and now and you need to come in. And that's a, that's a years long process, right? Well, we're playing the long game. Parents are playing the long game, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, then at four, maybe we call them and they don't come and we call them one more time if they still don't come. Maybe it's once, maybe it's twice, but maximum once or twice, you know, you're not going to go further than that. And then it's just a matter of, you know what, I've called you inside and you need to come now and you take them by the hand and or you, you know, gently take their shoulder and direct them in the house that you're, you mean it, right? When you ask something of them, you mean it. You're not going to sit there shouting from your, um, you know, from your deck or from your kitchen window or whatever. I said, come yeah, inside. We're so yeah. ineffective as parents when we do that. Right. And even the whole counting thing, like I, you know, I'm going to give oh you to the God. count of three. Right. We're so ineffective. We're putting all the power in their hands. Right. Yeah. You know, they're little. We can just guide them back to the house, right? Now, sometimes they're going to be thrashing and carrying on. That's okay, right? We'd hold, pin their arms down by their side, pick them up, walk in the house. Yeah, that was hard. You know, <laughs> that was hard, but it's okay. 
you know, now we have to be in the house. Sometimes, you know, kids get old enough that you've asked them to be in the house for whatever reason. And they're four or five, they're old enough to, to open the door by themselves. Sometimes you have to lock the door. No, actually we're in the house now, you know, and, and we just need to take charge, right? So uh, taking charge and being the grown up is just so important to the formation in obedience, right? So that was so much more work than sitting on your couch and yelling. And then punishing a child by sending them to their room, <laughs> you know, it's, it's more, it's more work in the short term, yeah. but it pays so much. The dividends, dividends are huge. So if you're still having to take your five or six year old and, and badger them to get them in the house and threaten and cajole and all of that, you know, that's an upside down picture. You've given them a lot of power, right? And so, you know, years and years ago, I had a neighbor of mine say we had our, one of our oldest kids was about around the same age. And, you know, when I called, so they were maybe say, I don't know, five or six at the time and or seven. I don't remember the exact age, but, you know, around that age. And she said, how do you get your daughter to, to come in when you call her? And. I thought I didn't really understand the question, right, because my own formation on that had been so subtle Right. Uh, partly, I think, from my own parents, but partly because my early interaction, uh, my early sort of formation was uh, La Leche League's book, The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding. And and so they talk about kind of obedience and, and getting children to obey. And it was just one of those things like, you know, if your toddler doesn't come in the house, you just go out and pick them up. You call them once and you go up and pick them up. Some mommy called you in. And, and it was so subtle. And I think my own parents were like that. Like we never got hollered at from the house um you know if we didn't and i think that was more that era and but they weren't unkind about it it wasn't like we got a spanking because we didn't come in the house on the first call Mm -hmm. but you know i call you you don't come i come out and get you right so there was a very proactive quality to to my own formation right and so I, but I had to really think about it. It's like, okay, why would a kid not come when you call them? I didn't really understand that. So I had to kind of examine what I was doing and why to be able to answer the question. And that was basically what I came to is that I've had this formation that indicated to me that you call one time and then you go get the kid, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it sounds so simple. There's a really amazing resource uh, that unfortunately it's a very poor website. I don't know if I brought it up with you before, but it's a woman started this website a few years ago and the website is outdated and poor and, and, and I can't get a hold of her. I've, I've tried a couple of times to contact her and find her in various ways, but the website is called get off your butt parenting. I, have you seen I it? I saw a blog post. I did. Yeah. About it. Yeah. And you quoted something from it. And I was like, this is brilliant. It's brilliant. And I just want to start copying and pasting stuff and just, I'll just give her the credit for it and link people to her website. But unfortunately, you know, I don't know what happened, but she's out of business, you know, and uh, it's so sad because she has got so much wisdom, this woman. And it's all about that. Like just, it's not about not being a lazy parent, the get off your butt thing. We think of that as a sort of a laziness thing. She's just saying you actually need to proactively fall up. up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we expect too much of our two and three and four year olds. It's through that proactiveness that we're going to get that 
obedience later on that we really want, those five, six, seven, ten, twelve, you know, sixteen that will say, you need to do a thing. Right? You need to do yeah. a thing. And that's really good for us to uh to have that really proactive attitude because it makes obedient kids later on, right? Well, and I, this is really reminding me of um, a part of the book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, which I recently read, where the author goes to three different cultures, indigenous cultures. Right. Yeah, I've been listening to it. Researches, like, wh- what do they do? How do they get their kids to cooperate? How do they get their kids to be so helpful? How do they get their kids to be so confident? And the Inuit, um, she goes to the Inuit, I think somewhere up in Canada. And they are like known for never yelling or saying anything in anger, especially to children. And they see it as like a babyish or childish thing. If you yell at a child, you're, you're being like a child. And you are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's you true, are. you know, but we don't think about that in our culture and that way. And there's this one story that she told that's just really stuck with me. Um, and that is, that she was in someone's house, an Inuit family's house, and there were a bunch of kids playing around in the room that, and the adults were just kind of hanging out, having coffee. And there was a coffee cup on like a side table and kind of a precarious position. And her daughter, the author's daughter, who's three and a half, I think at the time, um, was playing and knocked it over somehow. And the coffee spilled all over the floor. And her, the author... This mother, this American mother, her first response was she wanted to yell at her daughter, like, geez, how could you do that? Blah, blah, blah. Why don't you be more careful? But she stopped herself when she saw that no one else in the room was reacting. None of the adults were upset, were dysregulated by this, were nothing. The owner of the house got up, got a towel, put the towel over the coffee, handed the coffee mug to the person whose coffee it was and said, your coffee was in the wrong place. (laughs) And then everyone just moved on. There was no berating of the child. There was because they know this is what children do. This is what it means to be a child. Yes. And we are the adults. So we should be the ones who can control our anger, control our reactions to things. And this is not a big deal to have coffee spilled on the floor. It's really not. So, you know, and she saw what happened when she was roughhousing and and she saw that that was not a good thing. We don't need to give her a whole lecture about it. Um, And I was just like, wow, can you imagine if in America or in the West in general, we were more like that when kids did kid things when kids were yeah. just being kids and normal, doing normal child things. And we managed the environment. Yeah. And we actually right? were the ones who took responsibility instead of putting all the responsibility for good behavior on our children. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was just like this, and this is not a Christian culture. This is not a, you know, like as far as I know, I don't even know if these people are Christian. I'm sure they, they could be because of the missionaries who went to the, those communities, but this is part of their indigenous tradition. Like they, they do not think that it is an adult thing to do to lash out at a child for doing something that a child 
does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think when I look back, I am a yeller, right? And it was, that was a huge thing that I had to constantly work on and constantly, you know, um, be aware of that I was doing. But when I, when I reflect back on the times when I yelled at my kids, you know, and it, it, my kids tended to be older when it yelled, you know what I mean? It was like, wasn't like yelling at little kids, but, it, but still how undignified, how utterly undignified, you know, I, you know, I yell at a 16 year old because they're being mouthy. Well, you know, it is part of being a 16 year old. It's not right. It doesn't mean no, we just yeah. let them do that. But, but really, how is yelling setting any kind of example that makes my child feel like I'm in control and I'm the I'm the authoritative person in this situation, right? So undignified. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. But I think yeah. we forget that. I think there still is in our culture this attitude that children are somehow lesser. They are not as worthy of respect as we are. They're dign- they don't have as much dignity as we have. Um, and therefore, our right to be respected is more important than theirs. And so yeah, exactly. they violate, uh, you know, if they disobey, disrespect, whatever. Um, first of all, I think those words aren't really even appropriate for, for small children because they're yeah. not actually doing those things. Um, but even if they're older, like that doesn't mean that they deserve somehow to be disrespected. Yeah. To be yelled at, to be like, um, punished, to be whatever, right? Jesus, oh, I know. Jesus literally tells us that we should do unto others what we would have them do unto us. Yeah. I mean, that's from... that's from Kind of makes a real point of that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I, I just... It, it just really... It's like, how did we forget this? How did we get so far away from from the gospel, from Christian, uh, uh, Christian anthropology. I mean, this, the thing is that like some, some of these people, these parenting experts, these influencers, people who are, are faithful Christians who, you know, promote punitive discipline, even corporal punishment, um, things like that. It's like, they, I mean, those are the first people who are in, in line at the March for Life defending the dignity of the unborn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dignity needs to happen between birth and 16 as well, right? That's Yeah, like they they have dignity as well and their dignity yeah. has to be respected and protected and most of all by us the parents. I mean, that yeah, I it is such a it's like an examination of conscience that I I try to do as often as I can. Did I respect the dignity of my children today? Because it is so easy to think I am somehow superior. I am somehow more worthy of respect than they are because I'm. Than they are, I know. And you know, just going back to a moment, just this happened just yesterday, so it's kind of fresh in my mind, but like our, our, um, my daughter and her family just got a puppy, right? So I walked into their yard, and as puppies, she's very young, right? As puppies do, you know, she jumped up and bit the hem of my dress, right? And I said, oh no, puppy. And she, you know, and, but I mean, in my brain, I thought I, the flowing of a hem of a dress is always going to attract a puppy. I wouldn't, my wildest dreams think like if puppy had ripped my dress, my fault, 
right? I, I know there's a puppy. I should tie yeah. my dress up or whatever. You know what I mean? Or, or be more aware. But it was one of those things that, you know, you sort of, you, nobody would expect, you know, a 10 or 12 week old puppy to have good puppy manners yet. They're yeah. too young. They're too young. They're learning. And so I take responsibility. I wouldn't leave my shoes laying out with a puppy around. I wouldn't, you know, right. I wouldn't do that. And yet our human, you know, progeny, we're just so much more um, adamant about our expectations of, of who they are and what they're yeah. capable of. Yeah. Especially, right. You know, when you compare a, a, a puppy to say a toddler, right. You know, the toddler sees a, you know, a jar of flour. Well, yeah, of course they're going to get into it and spread it all over the house. How can we possibly expect them to know better? Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I love, there's this one Instagram account that's, um, they're actually Baptist, which kind of blows my mind because they don't seem like they're Baptist to me. Um, <laughs> they are a couple. Are you religious profiling? <laughs> I'm just saying, um, not, no offense to Baptists, it just, they strike me as, um, like very Catholic Baptists, I guess is the best way I could put it. But right. their, their tag, their handle is flourishing homes and families. And they have, um, just so many interesting, they do a lot of scriptural stuff on the rod verses and everything because that's their kind of milieu. But, um, one of the things that, they talk about a lot is that when people ask them about obedience, almost it's almost always related to like, well, what if, what if my child won't obey me when I tell them not to run across the street, you know, right. traffic. Um, and she, the, one of the, the wife half of the team, Amanda was talking about this on her stories. And she was like, look, the onus is always on the parent for safety. It is 100% your responsibility when it comes to a small child and their safety. You would not leave a loaded gun on a table with a two-year-old or a three-year-old in the room because that would be a death wish. And you don't give your child an opportunity to run across the street. Yeah. Without, if you know that they're that kind of kid, if you know they're the kind of kid who's going to want to run across the street, then you have to put something, you have to put things in place, strictures in place to where they can't do that, where it's physically not possible for them to do it. Yeah, exactly. And that is your responsibility, not theirs. They do not have impulse control in the same way that you do. So you really can't, you can't trust them. If you know they're not trustworthy in that area, if you know that they just don't have the impulse control. Yeah, manage the environment. And you have to manage the environment. And <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, you wouldn't let them wander around the legs of a horse. No. Right. So, I mean, yeah, we have to take charge. And again, it just kind of, kind of come back to the taking charge situation, right? That parents need to be in charge and actually be in charge. But I think, I think a lot of parents want their kid to just... I think it, it's tempting to be like, well, they should just listen to me. You right. know, they should just be doing what, I, because obviously I am, I'm smarter, I'm older and I know what I'm doing and they should trust me. Well, yeah. When they're like 10, yeah, maybe, but not when they're two or three because they're still learning and they don't have reason. Yeah. So they cannot reason. Oh, mommy says not to do this. Therefore I should not do this yeah. because mommy's very trustworthy and she's never led me astray before. So I'm just going to obey her in this, even though it doesn't make any sense to me right yeah. now. That is not a three-year-old. A three-year-old is not capable. Yeah, of exactly. And we, you know, we sort of have this, it is, a, it's a strange expectation that we put on our kids to 
you know, be obedient, right? When their life is just completely controlled by impulse. And so, yeah, you know, why, why, why have we gotten there? I, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a weird thing. I don't know. Well, I think it's, I honestly, I think it's Puritanism that has like the puritanical. We're the still, we're still suffering of, with that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. The total depravity, yeah. like there is, there's nothing good in human nature. Therefore anything like the developmental needs of a child, those just need to be beaten yeah. out of them because clearly like part of their wretchedness. Um, and I think, you know, whenever I read the Little House on the Prairie series, I'm always struck by how um, they really think children should be seen and yeah. not heard. Children should only speak when they're spoken to. They should make as little, you know, nobody should really be aware of their presence unless they want yeah. to be aware of it. and. Very much they are treated like they are lesser yeah. human beings. I mean, the youngest child gets fed the last on the ta- at the table and you can't like, it's just, it's just very um, striking how they did not, they really did think children were not yeah. fully human. Yeah. In it a seems way. that way. Hey, yeah, it's strange. And it just makes, it makes me sad, but I think that's still, I think that still creeps yeah. in to our yeah. Thinking. Yeah. And I, I know that, um, you know, there would be a philosophy that would say, well, but we're training them, right? We train them to, to, uh, you know, do a certain thing. I once, once was told that somebody who didn't spank said the only time I ever spank is when my child stands up in their high chair. Right. So, you know, I mean, you have a one-year-old who stands in a high chair, uh, and, and to me, again, it kind of comes back to the, well, well, that's my responsibility to make sure they're buckled or to take them out if they're squeezing out of their buckle or or whatever to keep them safe. But how is it? I don't understand how it is that spanking the child who's one uh, will make them learn that you sit down if they're completely impulse driven, right? How How is that possible? We also one time had somebody, our daughter went through a phase, she was maybe 18 months, two years old, she went through a phase of biting biting other kids right and so my response to that was to just be vigilant like to to either not go somewhere unless I was prepared to be vigilant around her and not ever turn my back right you know and I believe she would grow out of it which she did but we had somebody tell us you know well um when I when my son was going through that phase of biting other children I would just bite him back and so I said well I don't bite my kids like you know, I just know what to do. I'm sorry. Oh my. But because I think, okay, well, how, do, and, and you know, the philosophy was, well, then they know how it feels. But for somebody completely impulse driven, that's not actually going to matter. And so, you know, I said to the mom, well, did it work? And she said, well, eventually you just grew out of it. And okay, so. But he also knows now that you right. bite him. And that biting is somehow okay, you know, that, that, you know, and of course we can say, we don't do that. We can't bite. Of course we're going to say those things. It doesn't mean like you just let, let bad behavior just fly all over the place. Of course you say, we don't do that. Then you redirect. We don't do that. Then you remove them from the situation. We don't do that. And you follow up with some appropriate action that's going to prevent the thing from happening again we don't just say don't bite and then sit there you know that's important for us to to know that you know we always follow follow up with appropriate action but appropriate action to show them that you know 
violence is the right way to, uh, or aggression, aggression is the right way to follow up an aggressive behavior. How I, that doesn't make it, there's no logic there. There's no logic. Well, and your child might stop a behavior because you spank them, but that isn't because they think, Oh, this is bad for me. I shouldn't do it. It's because they're yeah. afraid of you. And that is not what I want for my relationship with my children. I do not want them to be afraid of me and therefore do what I say because they don't want to get physically yeah. harmed or yelled at yeah. or whatever. And I think that is like when we talk about fear of God or the fear, you know, that's that's an awe. That's a that's a deep, profound respect. It's not a I want to run and hide. That's not a good yeah. kind of fear. And we don't want our children to have that no. either. <laughs> You know, and that's, but I know that that is very often, I mean, I know personally, from personal experience that that is very often the result of corporal punishment. It's fear of the parent. And therefore that's where the compliance comes from. It's like, it's like people who, you know, go to church because they're afraid of hell. That's not the ideal reason to go to mass or to pray because you're just afraid of the punishment yeah. of hell. Um, that's a very immature exactly. spirituality. If, you, if that's the only reason you're going to church because you're afraid of hell. It's like the only, if you, the only reason you obey your parents is because you're afraid yeah. of what they can do to you. And you know, even if it's not corporal punishment, if it's just a series of, of, and I actually think the whole carrots and stick thing, I mean, who knows for sure, but the whole carrot and stick thing got so popular for a couple of generations was because it was, it felt like a halfway point between, um, yes. letting your kids walk all over you and being a really, uh, heavy handed parent. It seemed like mm-hmm. the middle way when in fact, you know, it's not a middle way, but that if your child just won't tell you things because they're afraid that they're going to lose the car keys or, um, or not be allowed out next time or, you know, whatever, we always have to sort of take it to the logical sequence of, what it would be like when they're older, you know? So if, if they lie to us because they think they're going to be grounded, you know, or they don't lie to us because they think they're going to be grounded. What we want is them to not, not to lie to us because it's wrong. Yes. And that would, you know, ideally we've shown them that, you know, this is, so maybe our child lies to us. So punishing them, what we're saying is, okay, you can't lie to us because you're going to get punished. You know, what we need to do is be talking with them. You know, I'm talking about an old child, of course, that, you know, talking with them, you know, what, why is lying wrong? right? Why is lying wrong? Mm -hmm. What does a lying do to our relationship? What does it do to your relationship with God? You know, these are, we need to have conversations with them. And that's where formation happens, not because we have meted out some sort of punishment that's going to prevent the lying the next time, right? Yeah. And I think people, yeah, like you don't have to use corporal punishment. Any kind of punitive measure can be a reason an extrinsic motivation for a child to not do something for a certain kind of child to not do something. Um, But that doesn't mean that they're not doing it because it's wrong and they're convicted that it is wrong. Even if they are still hanging on to the idea that they were somehow justified to do something, 
you know, they, they will grow out of that, right? So even if they're arguing with you that, oh, well, I lied because, you know, I had this good reason to, right? And they maybe they're going to defend that. The very fact that we're having the conversations with them as they mature, that's going to be something that you can address on a more mature level, right? I think it bears saying, actually, sort of going to veer somewhere for a moment, but I think it bears talking about consequences, because there's a lot of conversation on about natural consequences. And I belong to a couple mm. of Facebook groups, and the question comes up a lot, what is a natural consequence for lying? What, when, when it's things are less tangible. And I would, mm-hmm. I would say that if you have to ask what the natural consequence is, it isn't a natural consequence. So we, we need to be careful when we use that term. Like, what is a natural consequence? Like, say, for example, you lied to me. Therefore, you're not allowed to go out of your room today. That might seem like a a, a logical or natural consequence, or you're not allowed to go to your friend's house because I can't trust you, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, like the natural consequence of something like lying is, you know, going to be an undermining of trust. That's a reality. Um, But what we want is to give our kids every door and every opportunity to understand why they shouldn't lie to us, right? And so, you know, one of the most natural consequences is that we're going to be talking with them about lying and and bringing that up with them on a regular basis is, you know, lying is something that is wrong because it undermines trust, right? It's breaking a commandment. There's reasons why we don't want to lie. And and having conversations with them about that, that's, in a sense, the most natural consequence is that it's going to be something. If your kid doesn't lie to you, you're not going to be talking with them on a regular basis about the nature of lying and why that's bad for your soul and why that's bad for your relationships. Right. And, and so, you know, that to some parents that might, might sound okay. Well, that's lame. Like I'm just going to talk to them about it, but what else? Right. That's what we want. We want them to come to us. We don't want them to find sneakier and better ways to lie and more reasons for what more ways that we are not going to find out about the lying. So they become more advanced liars yeah. Right. We need to be talking with them. We need to be having conversations. We need to be explaining to them why it matters, right? Why honesty matters in their life. Right? Yeah. And, and showing them that we, that we prioritize it in our own lives too. By exactly. The way and I think, you know, it's so, I think the reason why, um, I mean, why parents want so badly to have a consequence for lying is because it hurts. Yeah so badly to be lied to. It's such an undermining of trust, right? It feels so like such a betrayal. Yeah. I remember having students lie to my face. Um, Students I loved and who I really thought loved me. Yeah. Um, And I realized, you know, you, it doesn't matter. (laughs) They can still lie to someone that they love. Yeah. But it was such a betrayal that it was really like, I, I can understand the desire to have some sort of like to come down with the hammer, mm-hmm. you know, and have some sort of like really clear laws, logical consequence. But I think you're right. I think that just foments the sneakiness. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas keeping the channels of communication open and talking to them regularly about it and, you know, making it clear that this is something, you know, being a, a, a truthful person is a lifelong venture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and it's the practice of virtue, right? Yeah. And it's not something. And I, I remember telling my students, I was like, you know, how many of you know, adults who lie a lot? 
And they all raised their hands. I was like, how do you think, when do you think they started lying? And they were like, hmm. <laughs> Probably not as adults. <laughs> Maybe when they were kids. Yeah. They don't just start becoming dishonest as adults. They yeah. start when they're young. And it gets yeah. easier and easier and easier. And to the point where you you might not even realize you are being a liar. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time. And that really, I mean, that made a bigger impression on them than any punishment that I could have doled out for, you know, cheating or whatever. Yeah. And so that was a real lesson for me that, you know, for so many of these kids, lying had become such a habit and they had gotten so good at it because they didn't want to get punished because Mm -hmm. they were trying to, they were trying to get around all of the different consequences and no one had ever really taken the time to actually have those conversations that you're talking about. It was always just, Phone's taken away. Don't go see your friends. Yeah, just yeah. You know, it would more. be a topic. Um, just we need to wrap up in a few minutes, but it would be a, a really neat topic, I think, for a podcast episode in the near future to kind of follow up this one on tools for getting our small children to be promptly obedient and and actually just talk about the various tools we can employ you know because i mean a lot of this question we've brought up some practical application but a lot of this is sort of philosophical yes but i think that parents having some really clear tools about this so i I actually really encourage people to submit situations to us if they can if if there's something in particular that you think okay i want my child to obey about this or they're being disobedient about this uh, submit the situation so that we can kind of together brainstorm responses to that. My child is doing X. What are some options that I could have in my back pocket, right? Do you think that would be a good topic? Yes, I would love that. Okay. Personally, I would, I'm sure I'd benefit from it too. Okay, yeah. Well, everyone would, right? The more tools we have at our disposal, uh, you know, the better off we are, right? Because what what might be an effective tool for one child might not be that effective for another. And I'll just give you one example of this, you know, the idea of going up and picking the child up. If you have a great whopping three-year-old that you can barely lift, right? It's not, it's not a really effective tool. If you call them once and then the backup plan is to go and pick them up, what then? Okay, what do you do if the child is actually too heavy for you to mm. pick up, right? Or how do we get the kids in the car? How do we, you know, those kinds of questions. So, so maybe let's uh, look at that for next week. That's a great idea. Okay, let's do that. We should probably wrap up here. This is a great topic. I'm so glad you asked it because it's a really, we could probably spend a few episodes just on this topic. (laughs) But yeah, let's hone in on the little kids and the behaviors. And if anybody wants to submit situations, questions to that, um, you can always do that through my Facebook page, Make Joy Normal, my email that is on my contact page on my website. Uh, I also get a lot of messages through Instagram. So please uh, submit those things. We'd love to hear those. You can also message me. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Uh, I am at Crunchy Catholic on Instagram. I'm also at Christina Jolloway on Instagram. I have two accounts. So those are the easiest. That's the easiest way to get it. Okay, fantastic. Okay, well, God bless and have a great day. Thanks, Bonnie. Bye.